Heavenly Father, I praise you for each of my brothers and sisters here and many who weren't able to come. Praise you for making us part of that great cloud of worshippers who will praise Jesus for all eternity. And I praise you that there are people in Chesham who you mean to add to our number. Please, will we hear your son speaking in the power of your Holy Spirit today and in the years to come? Will there be much fruit from this church family in Chesham? In Jesus' name, amen. Jesus reaches the world by building up the church. Jesus reaches the world by building up the church. I hope that Nehemiah as a book in the Bible has provoked a pretty huge question from you fairly early on. Why is he building a wall? (laughs) What do people think of uh, this guy's wall on the whole? Uh, I don't think that shot was played for laughs, but it is kind of funny. Um, uh, Or this one, plenty of people thinking about that. Uh, Or how about this one? Uh, points if you know what these walls are, uh, or finally this one. You know, that, it, they're not exactly friendly things, walls, are they? Partitions, barriers, dividing lines, protection. They're for keeping people out. That's not what church is about, is it? Walls enable gates to work. And that means there are gatekeepers Sentry to entry, people controlling who's in and who's out. That's not what church is about, is it? We could say, oh, it's all right, it's the Old Testament. They didn't have congestion charges, 24-hour surveillance, facial recognition, fingerprint scanners, firewalls, password protection. The first chapter of city building for beginners in ancient Persia was build a wall, the poor dears. We could drive a giant wedge between the church then and the church now and set ourselves up for assuming this book is basically irrelevant instructions on castle building in the Persian Empire. We could do that. Okay, maybe not. Don't think anyone's advocating that. Uh, So we could look, chapter 2, verse 20, at Nehemiah's wall-like words. As for you, you have no share in Jerusalem or any claim or historic right to it. And then we could think, well, this is just old-fashioned nationalism and protectionism, primeval Trump foreign policy. Or perhaps there's something else going on. Jesus teaches us through Nehemiah, perhaps more than any other book of the Bible, that church without walls and gates is hopeless. Church without walls and gates is hopeless. As a map for the first few verses to give an idea of Nehemiah's movements, that might be too small unless you've got, you know, binoculars or something. Uh, But the the key thing to notice there is um, Nehemiah spends all his time on that purple bit, which is the old, old city of David. That's kind of Zion uh, as it was when it became a city where the people of God were. One possible version of that journey that Nehemiah has gone through is that he wasn't just examining the wall. Depending on how you translate that word, you can say that he was broken down about it as he was walking around. As if seeing how broken the walls were broke him down inside. Even beyond the long praying and fasting 
that we saw in chapter 1 last week. Nehemiah scopes out the state of Jerusalem on his own, or perhaps with a few guys and with his mule or something, secretly before he gets other people involved. But there do appear, verse 16, to be people guarding the city in lieu of walls. Those are the officials, beginning of verse 16. But they haven't noticed Nehemiah. Perhaps those sentries would have spotted an invading army. But if anyone fancied a bit of thievery or taking up residence, perhaps, as a squatter in one of the houses of Jerusalem, they'd be welcome to do so, this little journey proves. Nehemiah's verdict, as he goes around that oldest part of the wall, is that there isn't really a thing called Jerusalem anymore. There's just a place where Jerusalem used to be. Verse 17, you see the trouble we're in. Jerusalem lies in ruins, and its gates have been burned with fire. Now perhaps we're saying, so what? Nothing to do with us. We need to learn from our brother Nehemiah and from his Bible and ours. We need to learn what Jerusalem means. And the Psalms in particular teach us. So here's just a representative sample. Psalm 48 verse 2. Beautiful in its loftiness, the joy of the whole earth. Like the heights of Zaphon is Mount Zion, the city of the great king. Psalm 87, verses 5 to 6. Indeed, of Zion it will be said, this one and that one were born in her, and the Most High himself will establish her. The Lord will write in the register of the peoples, this one was born in Zion. Or if you've ever sung or heard sung, I was glad, that parianthem. It's just Psalm 122, and here's one verse for it. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. May those who love you be secure. Zion, as you read through the Bible, is the heavenly reality behind the earthly Jerusalem. Jerusalem is the visible church, an outpost of heaven on earth, and the much bigger congregation, communion even of saints, who are surrounding the throne right now. When Jerusalem, in reality, was far short of that incredible calling, as it often was, it still retained its uniqueness because the living God declared it to be an outpost of heaven on earth by choosing to put his temple there. It's just like, in a different way, the pillar of cloud and fire in the wilderness, visible perhaps for thousands of miles around to other nations, saying, God is here, and the connection between heaven and earth, you'll find it here. Other nations in the Old Testament do stream to the God who is real because of big beacons like this. The God who walks and talks and actually does things through the angel of the Lord who dwells between the cherubim, above the mercy seat, above the ark, in the temple. The temple is the place that the Queen of Sheba came to hear more about Solomon's God. It's the place that Naaman the Syrian came to be healed of leprosy. Jerusalem at this time in the church's history is the geographical foothold of the kingdom of heaven on earth. There's really only one difference between our understanding in this way of Jerusalem today and Nehemiah's understanding. And in biblical terms, it's quite a minor difference. Nehemiah had a physical location for his Jerusalem. Our Jerusalem is global. 
this morning here with other Christians in St. Mary's, whether we call ourselves a Christian or not, whether we're on the live stream joining in that way, we're joining in with a small branch of the global Jerusalem. And it's important to be clear here, particularly with all that's going on in the world right now, the most the current city of Jerusalem on the eastern end of the Mediterranean can be is a historical testimony to what was once the center of global worship of the living God. When we grasp the deep significance of this Jerusalem, the global Jerusalem, not the current modern city for the eternal purposes of the living God, we get our first proper idea of why building this wall at this time was vital for Nehemiah. Because if there's no wall around this Jerusalem, there's no way to tell the difference between knowing the real and living God and knowing all the fading, worthless idols flooding the world. Just think about it. If there's no walls, people you meet who are in Jerusalem one day are going to be totally different from the people that are there tomorrow. What you get in the temple could, and in fact often was, closely resembling what you could get in any other city in the ancient Near East. Nothing distinctive at all. If Jerusalem in Nehemiah's day is indistinct from the rest of the world, there is no hope for the world. If there's no wall, there can be no gates, which means people can drift within a few meters of the only hope for the entire universe and miss him because no one ever spoke to them. Imagine a nomad family pitching their tent in Jerusalem for one night and then moving on and having no idea that they'd been anywhere of significance. Verse 17, Jerusalem is a disgrace. It's not causing the local non-Christians any bother either. It's only when Nehemiah, with the hand of his God upon him, moves the people to draw the line between Jerusalem, church, and everyone else that the opposition starts to come, verse 19, from Sambalat and Tobiah. And that shows us that wall building is as relevant for us as it was for them. At every stage of the church's history, calls have come to make the church relevant to break down the walls, alienating good and upright people from engaging with us, to pursue good relations with representatives of other faiths, to work together with other community groups. And that all sounds lovely at first. But then people begin to ask, and I've seen it happen, is all that Jesus stuff really necessary? It's a bit exclusivist, isn't it? I don't need the Jesus bit to be a good person or help the needy or build community spirit. With that, the walls tumble down. No hope of eternal life. No freedom from slavery to deceitful desires. No alternative to the weary selfishness, religion, self-righteousness, greed, hypocrisy, politics, pleasures and treasures of a lost world. Church only works as witness and hope for the world if we are radically different from the world. If we follow Jesus, even in holding views that others hate, 
If people call us backward and regressive and out of touch because we speak of Jesus, if we say ancient prayers and do ancient things like reading an ancient book in Jesus' name because we trust that all that stuff will outlast the fads and fashions of a relentlessly shifting culture. We'll only be distinct and hopeful for the world if around that ancient stability from our Christian forebears... We are so dynamic in our welcome of everyone, so loving and interested in their difference and the different take they have on how we do things, that our church culture is more vibrant and varied and vital than the most concerted enforced diversity drives of a guiltily monochrome Christless society. Jesus is the difference. Jesus is who makes us distinctive. The Lord who sits enthroned above the cherubim in the temple at Jerusalem. The book that he's given us that proclaims him that Ezra will read later in Nehemiah 8. The history of the Exodus, which is our history, that Nehemiah reads as a prayer in Nehemiah 9. The Christ. All of that still proclaims with crystal clarity and uncompromising hope, that is worth building a wall around. So it is never lost in the colorless dreariness of a me-obsessed world. We want people to come in to know him through a gate. A change from everything else to him. Rather than just giving a quick glance from a distance and wearily concluding that Jesus is just another disappointment. Church without walls and gates is hopeless. Our next chapter, and we're going to take it in one go, but not in detail, although it is worth reading, please do. Chapter 3, verses 1 to 32. Everyone can invest in church. Everyone can invest in church. Uh, This is among many of my favorite bits of the Bible. I've got quite a lot. Um, Number 7 is another one, and the first 10 chapters of Chronicles glory it's church there's all these names and I just think if I lived in church that time I could be in the bible um, but this bit is pretty awesome too we get a lived out project to reclaim the distinctiveness of church and a staggering number and variety of people are involved we see the return of hope in quite a subtle way if we look at the names of the generation doing the building compared to the names of their fathers and grandfathers, we see a transition from exile fatalism to rebuilding hope. And you see it in Nehemiah even. His name means Yahweh comforts, the Lord comforts, but his dad's name, Hakaliah, meant wait for Yahweh. See the difference? One is saying it's coming eventually, but it's far off. The other is saying, no, the comfort's here. Well, verse 4, Meshulam, as that name comes up quite a lot. That means from the land of peace. You know, Shalom, from the land of peace. Versus his granddad, Meshezabel, and that is a Persian name with a Persian god in it. You can imagine it, can't you? Meshezabel's dad is like, well, there's no point bothering with that god anymore. We might as well, you know, when in Rome, hopeless. <laughs> but two generations' time, I come from the land of peace from Zion, the place of hope for the world. Or Zadok and Bana. Zadok means just, righteous. 
That's the God we worship, the one who does things right, who is worthy to govern the world. But Barna, I mean son of distress. Don't hope for anything because your life's going to be worse than mine. There's more. It's really interesting when you look at the details, how actually it shows a change in the way church is thinking about the future. Oh, the wall marks a building of hope. There's also a striking thing about the people who are named and what they're like. Our heroes are generally measured on their productivity in the Western world. Even Captain Tom Moore, who people are probably the highest ranking national hero in recent years, he was measured on how much money he raised, wasn't he? He had just been godly and raised 20 pounds. You know, if he'd done all that walking and only raised 20 pounds, no one would know, no one would care. That's not how it works in the church. Scale is irrelevant in people's contribution. If we go around the map, just again, uh, this is just a brief visual thing. Um, You can see that red line there on the left, even with your kind of, you know, binoculars. That is about 1,000 cubits done in verse 13 by the residents of Zenoa, whose name means stink. Their town is called Stinky. You know, they're not the nice people you want to go with, but they're doing a thousand cubits at four football pitches, if you want to know, so quite a lot. And then verse 28, if you read that, you get above the horse gate, the priests made repairs each in front of their own house. So you've got putting a few shelves up and like a canal's worth of construction. And they're just said in the same breath. One person praying can transform whole countries in this city of God and not even know they're doing it. Just faithfully, kneel by their bed every evening, the whole world changes. One thing I'm willing to guarantee is that the governors of entire planets in the new creation will be people we have never heard of, who cheerfully serve church without recognition or Nobel Prizes in ways that the people they were serving probably didn't even notice. I pray that St. Mary's would be somewhere where service is not measured in spreadsheets, but where the quality of your life together going forwards is shaped by valuing the tiniest service offered in joyful faith in Jesus, where everyone matters to everyone else. I was thinking, I'm not going to get through the sermon if I think too much about how many instances you have shown me of that of loving each other patiently, kindly, in an unseen way. If you were to look to your left and right now, you would see people that you have blessed and who have blessed you. And if you're just joining the church family, just wait the kinds of things people do for each other. Praying in that room up there for people they barely know when they're sick or their marriage is in trouble or their kids are in trouble. Playing with kids, cutting out crafts, times a thousand whether it is a thousand cubit stretch like doing something that is headliney and perhaps gets a mention at the front or if it's doing something no one has yet thanked you for well it's still showing the world that jesus is awesome in church i thank god for every one of you or if it builds hope and if there's no relevance to scale in this glorious church family there's no uniformity either Verse 12, Shalom serves with his daughters. Rulers serve alongside the common people. 
Perfumers serve next to merchants. High priests serve with Gibeonites, who are descendants from enemies of Israel, who made a treaty back in the days of Joshua. And here they are, rubbing shoulders with the great and the good, deciding the future of the national church. Nehemiah's issue, verse 20, is not xenophobia. The issue is that these two are trying to take over. They're not interested in church as a distinctive project of the living God. They're interested in trying to snuff it out or overmanage it. If they repented and believed the gospel, they'd be welcome like anybody else. There are so many more things. Can I commend to you this chapter just to look at how diverse these church family members are in their service together to the same end? But let's come back to why they're building in the first place and why making clear to the world that church is different is actually the best hope for reaching the world. Something that many people are wrestling with at the moment after the pandemic is when we are overzealous for going and fixing everybody else, either saying you need to repent and believe right now and I'm going to tell you why you're wrong and I'm right. When people do evangelism like that, the church we invite people back to, if they actually do respond, can atrophy. If we are not building each other up, loving each other, serving each other, discipling each other, there is no church to draw people to. The way that uh, some guys in a podcast put it that I was listening to said, if the body is healthy, it will grow. If we are drawing strength from Jesus together as a family, if we are not being insular and inward looking, which is not the way Jesus is, if we are naturally being the way that he commands us to be to each other, people will come. People are coming. New people have come the last week just because this church is a place where Jesus is worshipped and loved. Let's not neglect each other because people will be drawn to us as we love each other. Jesus reaches the world by building up church. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I praise you for this church family. Praise you for all the things that only you know about that people have done in Jesus' name for his glory because they are drawing strength from him and they care about his body as much as they care about him. Please, Father, would St. Mary's and the other churches in this parish be healthy parts of the body of Jesus so that we grow. In Jesus' name, amen.